Today, as we look at the church of Pergamum, we're looking at a different type of threat. Satan doesn't always come in the front door, banging it down. When it doesn't work, he has alternative strategies. And one of them is to entice us and to lure us away from the heart of God. And that was the sin of Pergamum. It seems that it's either intimidation or enticement. It's either the violent threat of death or it's the subtlety of an angel of light. And for the church of Pergamum, though they did a number of things well that we'll look at, they did some things that were clearly compromised before God. And I think there's a lot we can learn from it this morning. I think it applies very directly to the church today. And by God's grace, as I speak and as the Lord uses it, your heart will be moved and touched to respond that you might be fully and completely set apart for Christ. Now, there's a story that I heard some time ago about a hunter and a bear. The hunter was wanting to go hunt the bear because the bear had the the fur and the hunter knew winter was coming and so he said, I'm going to go out and hunt a bear. I'll kill the bear, skin the bear and, uh, and make a coat out of the hide. And so he went out on his hunt and was looking for a bear. He found a bear and just as he was lowering his rifle and about to take aim and pull the trigger, the bear noticed the hunter and stopped and said, wait, why, why do you want to shoot me? Don't shoot me. And the hunter says, well, I, I want to shoot you because I need your hide to make a coat so I'm not cold in the winter. And the bear said, well, well what about me? I'm hungry. You know, I'd like to eat you. And can't we come to some sort of a compromise? And so, of course, they came in the end to a compromise and the hunter was well enveloped in the bear's fur and the bear had eaten his dinner. And oftentimes that's what compromise does to the Christian is that we try to capitulate and we try to get along and we try not to be too offending. And as a result, we end up being Satan's dinner. And it's through compromise It's through the surrender, not to someone who is giving a head-on assault, but someone who is negotiating with us and saying, come on, don't be so zealous for Christ. You're not going to have any friends. Don't be so excited about Jesus that when you're around people, they they roll their eyes because that, you know, you want to be liked too. Just kind of back off a bit and then back off a bit more and then a bit more until finally our entire witness has been compromised. The church of Pergamum was a church of compromise. A little bit of background. Pergamum was about 45 miles north of Smyrna, the church that we studied last week. They're kind of in a, in a circular fashion and we're, we're going through them uh, one by one. The church of Pergamum was famous for its idolatry. It was famous particularly for its worship of the emperor. It was the first... Uh, of all of the cities to worship the emperor and they were given that right and it became the seat of emperor worship. In fact, we're told that because of that and all the other idolatry that was taking place in Pergamum at that time, that they were the throne of Satan and that Satan actually took up residence in that place because of their extreme idolatry and their perversion and their rebellion against God. It's also interesting to note that the word Pergamum in its root form is two words. Per means thoroughly or completely and gamas means marriage. And so this church was thoroughly and completely married 
to the culture of the city of Pergamum. It's a dangerous thing when our hearts are wed with this world. James tells us that in very brash and straightforward, unvarnished terms, he says, you adulterous people, he says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This was the condition of the people in the church in Pergamum. They had compromised themselves. Now we know from the text, and we'll study this in a few moments, there are some, some things that they did right. But they had compromised themselves. And as a result, Jesus has some very stern warnings for them that we'll look at. Now this word comes from Jesus, as we know, and he says in the, just uh, the beginning of uh, verse 12 that these are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. And so Jesus begins to introduce himself as he does at the beginning of all of these letters and he, he explains a small portion of his character and his majesty and his greatness that was outlined in, in, in fuller extent in chapter 1. And he says, I am the one that has the sword coming out of my mouth. Now the sword in scripture has two purposes. One is to penetrate and, and to, to get into the heart and the mind of someone in order to help them see the truth. So it exposes what's dark and what's not true and what's a lie. But the sword also has the purpose of judgment. And as we're going to look at this sword a little later in this text, it's a sword of judgment that is coming to a compromised church or a compromised believer but Jesus says some very encouraging things. He says, first of all, I know your condition. You know, even though we've talked about this before, I just want to touch on it again. I find such great comfort in my heart knowing that God knows everything about me. He knows my failures. He knows what I'm thinking about. He knows the successes. He knows the things that are, are great blessings in my life. He knows the struggles that I face. And He knows the very same thing about you. And He also knows that He has the power to bring you through everything, good or bad, to the very end that you might be a perfect and blameless bride at His coming. Now Jesus begins by saying that He knows where they live, where Satan has His throne. I, I need to stop at the very, almost the beginning here and talk about another word, the word live. In Greek, there are a variety of words that are translated live in English. But there is the living that can be like a sojourner, someone that's kind of camping. We have a lot of campers that come on this island. They don't live on the island, but they're, they're camping here. They're, they're just kind of passing through. And then there's a variety of words in the middle, and then you've got the, the most serious living, which is permanence. There's a sense of permanence, not just that you have a house, but that you have been absorbed into the entire culture and the experience of that city. That's the word that Jesus uses regarding the church in Pergamos. They have become absorbed. They have become compromised. They have set down roots so deep that they can't even think about leaving. Some of you might recall the story about Abraham and Lot. Do you remember when their flocks grew too big and there was no room? And so, so Abraham said, look, you pick whichever area you want and I'll go to the area you don't want. And so Lot looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah and he saw a beautiful valley and he said, I love that place. That's a great place. And what the Bible says is that Abraham, on the other hand, went and he went out into really a desert region. And it says that Abraham dwelt in tents, sojourning. 
In Hebrews, we're told that he, he lived as an alien and a stranger. Lot, on the other hand, it says that he went and took up permanent residence in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he became compromised in his own relationship with Jesus, so much so that it cost him almost his own life. It certainly cost him his wife's life and family members. And so that's the difference between the Christian who is called to just be an alien and a stranger. You see, when you came to Christ, the Bible says that you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, and there's a citizenship issue at stake. When you received Christ, you are no longer a citizen of this world. Yes, you're living here. Yes, you're, you have houses. Yes, you have cars. But your heart and your citizenship is known to you not to be here, but in heaven. And so you live not by the standards or moral values or ethical values of this life and this world, but by the standards of your new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And so in this very little phrase, we we find out something else about Pergamum, that they had not only been wed to the culture, but that he had kind of set down roots. They were kind of becoming very compromised, not just in their spiritual life, but also in where they were investing all their energy and time and resources. But in spite of this, Jesus says, you have remained true to my name. They hadn't given up the basic doctrines of the faith. They hadn't given up the deity of Christ or the, the, uh, the resurrection of Jesus or his death and burial or any of these fundamental truths that the Bible teaches are so important for the believer to hold on to. So against all of the corrupting influences around them, they held firmly to the truth of Christ. And then Jesus goes on and he says, not only that, but you didn't renounce your faith in me. You know, Jesus speaks clearly and frequently about the importance of standing for him. In Matthew, he says, whoever acknowledges me before my father, I also will acknowledge him before my heavenly father. But then he gives a warning in Mark And listen carefully to this. He says, But if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, which is certainly typical of Pergamum, but also our culture as well, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him, or that individual Christian who was ashamed, when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. But this church of Pergamum, even though they had compromised themselves and were kind of on the slippery slope, away from their intimate walk with God, they still had managed to hold to the truth of Christ and they had managed to not renounce their faith in God. A valiant thing in light of what they were facing. Because Jesus tells us, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, you didn't renounce your faith. Now, who's Antipas? Well, we don't have very much information at all in the Bible about Antipas, but we do have some historical information. We're told that Antipas was one of the first martyrs in Asia. In fact, we're told, uh, tradition has it, that Antipas, because of his faith in Christ and his unwillingness to bow the knee and bend and compromise with the culture, he was living as an alien and a stranger, as God called him to. And the result was that they put him in a hollow bronze bull. And then they built a fire around it and baked him inside of it until he died. And Jesus says, in spite of the persecution that you faced, that Antipas faced, and that all of the other believers in Pergamum would and had faced, he commends them and says, you have not renounced my name. Now, there are two things that Jesus does say are a problem with the church of Pergamum. In spite of their ability to hold strong when it came to the outside pressure, 
there were some things that were happening inside the lives of these believers that were compromising them. You remember I said that Satan either comes with a full-on frontal attack or he comes in the back door and begins to sneak up on us and lure us and entice us into things that destroy us. And that was happening to the church. Though they had resisted the frontal assault, they had not resisted the subtleties of the enemy in coming in the back door. And Jesus says to them, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Now, I want to give you just a a brief rerun of the story about Balaam. Now, Balaam was a prophet of God, but he had compromised himself long ago. He was using sorcery for his prophecies. He was a greedy man. He was a man that was, uh, you could buy him. You could buy him to do whatever you wanted if the price was right. Now at that time, Israel was a growing nation. They had not yet entered the promised land and they were going to cross through a territory where the Moabites lived. And the king of the Moabites happened to be named Balak. And Balak had heard all the stories about the great God of Israel, Yahweh, and how he had devastated and decimated huge armies as Israel had come through. And so he was appropriately afraid. And he said, I can't come at this with a frontal assault. We've got to figure out another way. And so he found a man who had compromised himself and yet was connected in some distant way with the people of Israel. So he goes to Balaam and he says, Balaam, I want to hire you to go and curse the people of God. And Balaam initially says, I can't do that. I mean, I don't want to incur the wrath of God. But in time, with enough invitations and enough uh, a money, monetary reward offered to Balaam, he consented and eventually went. And to make the story short, Balaam goes on a mountaintop looking at the people, millions of people of Israel that were in the valley and he goes up there with Balak and Balak says, okay, Balaam cursed them. And so Balaam opens his mouth and he begins to try to curse them but all that comes out is blessing. And God, through this wicked, compromised prophet, began to speak his own word to the people of Israel. I just love that because even the enemy cannot curse God's people. Is that we are completely safe. But Balaam tried, but all that came out was blessing and Balak was incensed because in that blessing was a cursing on Balaam and the Moabites. So he said, wait, 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 this is all wrong. This is not right. I don't like what's happening here. Balaam, stop talking. Now, you come with me. So they go to another point, another ridge, and they say, maybe the gods of this ridge will allow us to curse the people of Israel. And so he says, Balaam, have at it. So Balaam starts to try to curse the people again. Well, he can't. All that comes out is greater blessing. This happens four times. By the time the fourth time is finished, Balaam says, look, I am not responsible for any of this. All I'm doing is I'm opening my mouth and I, I can't even help what's coming out. It's a blessing of God. And he tells Balak what God blesses, no man can curse. But Balaam says, you know, I want that money so bad and I want that Renown that you promised me, Balak, so bad that I know of a way that you can get around the full frontal assault that we're trying to do and we can find another way. We can get God to curse these people. So the plan was set in motion. It was to, it was to send some beautiful Moabite women down into the valley and to have them entice the Jewish men, the young men, unmarried men, into sexual immorality. Well, sure enough, it worked. 
these Moabite women went down there and they paraded themselves back and forth and, and they were able, in, in the course of time, to entice these Israelite men into intermarriage with them. And then the Bible tells us that the next step was that they began to worship the gods of these wives who were not believers. And then the saddest thing happened is that God cursed them because of their spiritual adultery. That's the sin of Balaam. And that was his, uh, uh, his wickedness that God is work, was working or allowing Satan to work out. Now, behind every type of enticement like that, of course, is the enemy. Even in this work through Balaam, Satan is right, right there. Satan is the one orchestrating it. He's the one that's inspiring every evil work. And even in our own lives, when we're enticed and, and Satan is working, you're thinking, uh, you know, what a beautiful girl or what a handsome guy or whatever. And you're just thinking, isn't it coincidence that we just keep running into each other? But all the while, Satan behind the, uh, behind the scenes is scheming, trying to allure and trying to tempt and trying to unravel and destroy the precious relationship that the believer has with Jesus Christ. Now we're told that he enticed them to do, to do two different things, to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, there must be at least someone that had breakfast that was food sacrificed to idols. Anybody uh, get a chance to... No? Nobody ate any food sacrificed to idols? Oh, well, I guess, I guess I'm going to have to change my points then. The fact is, is that though we don't eat food sacrificed to idols, there are things that we worship that are just as deadly and maybe even worse. Now, I could talk to you about money and how our culture worships money. I could talk to you about success. I could talk to you about hobbies and how we invest hordes of time and money and energy into recreation. I could talk to you about material goods. But I want to talk to you about something that I think strikes a little closer to home for all of us. And... Uh, when I talk about this, I can tell you right up front that some of you are going to think I'm a legalist and, uh, and I will wear that badge proudly. Some of you will be upset by the things I'm about to share. And that's all right, as long as it's the work of God and the Spirit of, of Christ. But I believe there's an idol that is pervading our culture, one that has ruined our culture, one that is taking down the church, one that has maybe even infected your life and it's television. I've talked about this before. I'm not embarrassed at all to, to, uh, to discuss it and to share with you my concern about it. And I'll tell you why. Because I love the work of God. And I love the people of God. And God has put in my heart a love for each of you. Because you belong to Him. And I have a responsibility before God to speak the truth as much as I understand it. And apply the Word of God. And in this case, to apply it regarding Pergamum and the idolatry that they were facing. Let me just give you a few statistics. The average American family watches about 6 hours and 15 minutes of television every day. That's approximately 2,100 hours a year. They did a, a study at the same time and found that the average person read only about 5 hours a year. I'm not talking about magazines or newspapers or periodicals. I'm talking about books, literature, reading only about 5 hours a year. The average elementary school student, by the time they're in elementary school, will have witnessed 8,000 television murders. By the time an average student has graduated from high school, they will have watched 100,000 acts of television violence. Now, I'm not even talking about illicit relationships. I'm not talking about uh, innuendo and, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the homosexuality that now that's becoming pervasive on television programming. And it's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. There'll be more and more of it. There's a quote by David Frost. Many of you may know him. He's a commentator, television commentator, actually. Listen to what he says about television. He says, Television is an invention that permits you to be entertained in your living room by people that you would not have in your home. 
We believe and teach our children that swearing is wrong. It's unacceptable to God. We believe that dishonesty and stealing are immoral and unethical. We believe that sex outside of marriage is sin. We believe that violence and murder are morally wrong. But then we spend literally years of our lives and invite our children to join us, being entertained and subtly indoctrinated into spiritual compromise. And then we're shocked when our children actually put into practice what we have allowed to be taught in our homes for all of those years. I know that this is a sensitive issue. I know that probably most of you have TVs. And all I can tell you is that I know it's a difficult issue for one reason, is that any time I talk about this topic, is that Christians become very defensive and somewhat angry with me. And I realize at that point that I have touched a sacred cow, an idol within the body of Christ. Now, I'm not discounting that there are some good programming on, on television. There's programs like Touched by an Angel and there's some others uh, uh, that, that are available and certainly this program on Hawiki <laughs> that hopefully has some value in some other Christian programming. But essentially, I would say 95% of what's on TV is corrupting and undoing the very work that God wants to do in the church. And it's not just TV, it's movies. People rent R-rated movies who are in the church. And I've heard over and over again, you know, well, the storyline is so good and the special effects are unbelievable. And I, you know, I just kind of, you know, all the swearing and the nudity and all that stuff, I just kind of, I just don't think about that. I just, you know, it doesn't really have any effect on me. Oh, really? What kind of language do you use at home when you're angry with your spouse? If you let swearing and defiling words enter your home through your ears over and over and over, I can guarantee you that when you're angry, you will swear. If you let illicit relationships constantly be coming in visually, when you are struggling in your relationship with your spouse, you will begin to look elsewhere. You will be tempted in ways that you wouldn't have been had you not been indoctrinated by television. Now, again, some of you will think I'm a legalist. I think of myself as a purist wanting to keep my heart pure, wanting to set myself apart for Jesus Christ and for Him alone, wanting to, wanting to be only His bride and not shared with others, wanting to be that spotless and blameless bride of Christ.